This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that you've given us today of meeting together. And with regards to the book of Colossians and uh, wrapping up this session, we ask that your spirit would be present here and as in a special way. Father, as I go back and review some things and expand on a couple of ideas that I think were, uh, need uh, warrant that expansion, I pray that your will would be accomplished in the understanding of all of us. Father, please again, send your spirit to be here. We need his grace, his influence, his understanding. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, somebody want to swing the door there? I mean, I would love to have uh, anybody who would like to come in. That would be great. But um, as far as the noise level, I think it will help you all. All right, so if you have your Bible here, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment and look at verse 8. So Colossians 2.8 reads, Paul giving a warning to the church, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now Ellen White says something interesting about this in Acts of the Apostles, page 474. Now some of you may have been in the session the other day, and this is sort of just picking up that thread and then we'll move on. Here's what she said about that text in particular. She says, The warnings of the Word of God regarding the perils surrounding the Christian church belong to us today. I think that's a critical thing to understand. The warnings that are given in the New Testament belong to us today. They're not given just simply for that context. These are things that we need to be aware of and watchful for in our own generation. So that's Acts of the Apostles, page 474. She says, as in the days of the apostles, men tried... Now, I want you to notice what the effort was directed at here, this philosophy and vain deceit. What was the devil trying to do? She says, as in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy... What do you think the next phrase is? To do what? Here's what she says. To destroy faith in the scriptures. What was all that vain uh, deceit and philosophy and all that? What was it directed to do? Destroy faith in the scriptures. The devil's plan is for you and I to lose confidence in the Bible. He wants to take the Bible away from you. He may not in our generation take it away physically, but there are other ways to take away the Bible than just removing it from your home. Okay, she says, as, as in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy to destroy faith in the scriptures, so today by the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, we'll explain that, what that is in the next few minutes, evolution, spiritualism, theosophy, and pantheism, 
So by that list of things, the enemy of righteousness is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. Okay, so let's just briefly look at the ones we're not going to cover. Pantheism. What is pantheism? Anybody know? No idea. Ever heard of the word? Okay. No, it's the idea that God is impersonal, that he is this essence or force that's present all through the creation. That he's the one that, 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 it's actually not, you can't say he, you would say it. This essence ties everything together. Everything is part of this universal essence or consciousness. Okay, so the, pantheism, of course, is the fun, foundational philosophy of Hinduism and, and some of these other world religions. Theosophy, what's that? Anybody ever heard of Theosophy. Okay, let me, uh, let me throw a name at you. Has anyone ever heard of Madame Blavatsky? No. So a few of you have. Okay, so Jeff and Eva, you're here on the front row. Now famous on Audioverse. Uh, what, what, who was Madame Blavatsky? She was, a, she was the first kind of beginner of the New Age. Right. She was one of the inaugural people of the New Age movement, 1875. Uh, or, or around that time, the Theosophical Society of, of America was founded, and she was one of the founders of that society. And of course, what's the essence of that? You reach God through what means? Mysticism, mystical meditation. Now, let me ask you something. You know, we're not going to deal with mystical meditation today, but I want to ask you, is this an issue that we see uh, not just on the horizon, but we hear about it coming into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Is mysticism knocking at the door or entering in? Yes, it is. So here we have a warning against it, right here in Acts of the Apostles, page 474. And I see we're still running without the benefit of visuals, so I'm going to do my best to repeat things so that you have it in your memory and so that you can go back and read the passages for yourself. Okay, moving on. I want you to notice how the, the battle that we are facing today is the very same battle that the Christian church has always faced. Okay, that, and that battle is for the Bible, for, the, for faith in the scriptures. So in the first century AD, we read statements like we've read just a minute ago from the Apostle Paul that warned people to stay away from philosophy and vain deceit. These things were coming in to supplant faith in the Bible as, as uh, the divine revelation from God. Peter also warns, John also warns, you know, the apostles caution people to not give up their faith in Scripture for some other method of knowing God. Of course, by the time you reach the 4th century A.D., apostasy had gained enough traction after the persecution of the church ceased. Uh, and among the compromisers, those who wanted to accommodate the culture of that time, Ellen White says this in Great Controversy, page 45, paragraph 2. So make sure you write that down. Great Controversy, page 45. She says... Uh, the Bible was not accepted as the standard of faith. That's how she characterized those who were compromising in the fourth century. Of course, what time, of, what time are we talking about here? 
fourth century. Who's the emperor of Rome in the fourth century, the significant one? You guys remember your history? It was Constantine. Okay, Constantine, the emperor of Rome. Once the persecution ceased, that opened the door for Christianity to go mainstream. And then once that happened, there were all kinds of people who wanted to join the church, but the problem was they kind of liked their idols and that type of thing. They wanted to keep that stuff. And so the church was having to find ways to accommodate itself to the culture. And so when you're, whenever you're having to find ways to accommodate the culture, what's going to go out the window, friends? Scripture's got to go out the window because Scripture doesn't accommodate culture. It challenges and confronts culture, and it transforms culture. It forms its own culture, doesn't it? The Bible is creative like that. So by these compromisers in the fourth century, the Bible was not accepted as the standard of faith. Instead, they brought other things in. Then, of course, what follows that in church history? Benjamin, what followed the, what followed the compromising era of the fourth century, fifth century? Then what do you have? The papacy comes, right. The Roman church, and, and their policy was as much as possible to do what with the Bible? What did they do? Did they hand out Bibles to new believers? No way. As much as possible, they took the Bible away from the people. They kept it chained up in monasteries. Even many of the clergy knew very little of Scripture. In fact, there were people in the in uh, living during that time, many people thought that all the scripture that ever existed was the little bits and pieces that were read uh, as part of the liturgy. They had no idea that there was like this Old Testament and New Testament. Sad. So following this great span of time in which the, the ages were dark, you have a great flood of light that comes upon the world. What, that, what brought that about? The Reformation, exactly, yeah. And what did the Reformation do with regards to the Bible? What was the, what was the big key at the time of the Reformation in regards to the Bible? Well, sola scriptura was the, the philosophy, the doctrine that Luther proposed, absolutely. So there was a, a Copernican revolution away from tradition back to Scripture as the rule of faith and practice. However, there was one other factor that was equally as significant. Yes. Translation of the Bible into the language of the people, plus then one more factor, printing press, Gutenberg, right? The, the Bible was made accessible to the people in their own language. Very critical. So, how many of you think the devil was satisfied with that situation? <laughs> no way. He did not want the people to have the Bible in their own language. He doesn't want you to have the Bible, or at least he doesn't want you to read the Bible. So, instead of trying to take the Bible away, as he had in the past, the devil decided he was going to try a different tactic with the Bible. 
So along comes a guy in 1838 by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he wrote a book entitled Hermeneutics and Criticism. I'm not giving the German title, of course. I would love to be able to. I actually don't have it written down here. You probably know it. But 1838, by the way, is that date significant at all? 1838. What's that really close to? 1844. Yeah, there's a number of things I'll point out that are right close to 1844 here. But this is one of them. Schleiermacher, 1838. Hermeneutics and Criticism. He lays the foundation for higher criticism of the Bible. And what Schleiermacher proposed was, he said, instead of the Bible containing propositional truth, what it is, is a record of the religious experience of the writers. That's what, you know, instead of telling us what to believe, the Bible tells us only what Moses believed, what Paul believed, right? Now, I want to ask you a question. Does everyone see that there's a world of difference between those two ideas of telling us what we should believe and telling us what other people believed, but not necessarily informing our situation, okay? So Schleiermacher um, proposes this. He said, religion and reason must be kept separate. Faith and science need not be reconciled together. Of course, that's where we are today still, isn't it, right? You know, we have faith over here. Some people do faith over here and science over here. So you have people who say, yes, I believe uh, I accept the Bible, but I also accept evolution. Well, how do you put those two together? And that's where we have the big conflict today. Right? People are trying to fit millions and billions of years into Genesis. Well, guess what? It doesn't fit. So people are put to the test. You have to choose what, which one you're going to follow. But Schleiermacher was the one who said, we need to keep faith and science separate. Reason and religion are not on the same uh, page. And therefore, he introduced the subjective approach to interpreting Scripture. In other words, what's really important, according to Schleiermacher, and remember, this is laying the foundation for higher criticism. For Schleiermacher, what was important is not whether the Bible is true or not, but what it means to you. Right? Not whether it's inspired, but whether it's inspiring. Okay? So here are the basic assumptions of higher criticism. You've got to take notes now. And this will, this will be, we'll put the slides on the GYC website. So later on, you can see what you missed. Uh, but there are three basic assumptions of higher criticism. And remember, this is the warning that we're given in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. I dare say that when I was talking about higher criticism the other day, uh, how many of you knew what I was talking about? One, sort of, maybe, okay? And a few of you, some of you weren't here the other day. So that's why I'm taking the time to explain it now. So three basic assumptions of higher criticism. By the way, why do you think they call it higher criticism? 
In that situation, who's higher, you or the Bible? You are. The reason they call it higher criticism is because man sits up here and judges the Bible down here. What's it supposed to look like? The Bible's supposed to be up here, and it's supposed to judge us, right? But higher criticism flips that around and says, no, we will judge the Bible. Okay, so principle number one is the principle of criticism. Well, what did I say it was? Criticism. Okay, the principle of criticism. What that just means is nothing in the Bible, according to the higher critic, is assumed to be accurate or valid and must be examined in the light of external criteria and evaluated by human reason. This is the foundational principle. Number two, the principle of analogy. Now, what it, when I, if I make an analogy, what am I doing? I'm comparing something to something else and saying this is like this. Okay, so the principle of analogy simply means, as it applies to higher criticism, that they say the Bible record of past events is judged by occurrences that happen in the present. So in other words, for the higher critic, if we don't see it happening today, if you've never seen it happen, it didn't happen then, right? So therefore, things like the flood, things like the parting of the Red Sea, things like the resurrection of Jesus. The higher critic says, i never seen anybody raised from the dead. The higher critic says, I've never seen water just part and people walk through. So I don't believe that, that that happened. And then finally, uh, the third principle, correlation. And of course, when you break down the word correlation, what does that mean? co Relation, okay? So it, what this essentially means is that they say all events in history are part of an interrelated web of natural cause and effect. Did you hear the word I used there? Natural cause and effect. What are the implications? If history is a closed continuum of interrelated events all dependent on natural cause and effect. Where's God? Is he, is he there? Does he intervene? No, not according to the higher critic. So let me ask you all this. If you were to take this approach to Scripture, what do you have left? Huh? Not much. <laughs> nope, not much survives when you take that approach. And of course, uh, the implications of this method, it implies the disunity of the Bible writer's views. Higher critics, uh, as they take this approach and they assume that the Bible was a human production, that the Bible writers just wrote out their own opinions and so on, well, they say human opinions vary, right? So Bible writers' uh, views on the same topic are going to vary. So, you know, they, the impl implication would be that the Bible would be in contradiction with itself somehow. 
right? That's what these folks will tell you. And they also believe that the Bible is culturally conditioned, meaning that its commands and uh, teachings are limit, limited by the cultural perspectives and scientific understanding of the writers. So what are they doing, essentially, the higher critics? What are they doing with God? Huh? They're eliminating him. Yeah, they did a search and find and replace. God is gone. And the Bible is simply a human document to these people. And then, of course, since it's only a human document, as, as, they, as they think, then the authority of the Bible is replaced by what the interpreter thinks is reasonable, and therefore they would say, we, through our own reasoning, can judge the Bible's validity and relevance for our lives. So you essentially, as Ellen White will put it here in Acts of the Apostles, page 474, this is the following paragraph from the one I read earlier. She says, the work of higher criticism in dissecting conjecturing, reconstructing, is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of, its, of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. Now, how many of you believe that you and I need God's word to control, uplift, and inspire your life. How many of you want to say, yes, I need that. I want God's word to control my life. I need my life to be controlled. I can't control my life. Neither can you. I mean, you can't control mine and I can't control yours, but you can't even control your own. What about uplifting and inspiring? I mean, where are you going to, where are you going to go to get the uh, inspiration and encouragement and divine power the creative power that you see in God's Word. There's nowhere else to go. But higher criticism takes all of that away, doesn't let you have the real deal. So one of the manifestations of, of this uh, that's come about in recent times is the redemptive movement or trajectory hermeneutic that's been proposed. And I want to just go on record as saying this. I don't have any personal gripes with any of the scholars in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. None. I like all of them. They're all, I consider uh, people, there are people that I know that have used this hermeneutic, and I consider them friends. So we're not talking about personalities here. I'm not even going to quote anybody, uh, but I'm just sharing with you a concern that I have uh, regarding this uh, hermeneutical approach. What are, what are hermeneutics again? Who was here the other day? Hermeneutics are principles of interpretation. If you want to know what's at the bottom of the controversies that we are facing as a people, and you know what they are, if you want to know what's at the bottom of all of it, it's this it's the principles that we use to interpret Scripture. If we all used the same principles and applied them appropriately, we wouldn't have these controversies. Okay? So the 
trajectory hermeneutic or the redemptive movement hermeneutic. It's called by both names. Here's what uh, this assumes. It assumes that what the Bible teaches progresses and changes through the Bible and that further progress in some areas was intended by God for our modern situation. An example that they give is slavery. Some people will tell you the Bible condoned slavery. Now, first of all, I take issue with that. I'm not sure that that's true. I don't, in fact, I don't believe that. Did the Bible really condone the kind of slavery that was practiced in this country where one man owned another man? You don't find that in Scripture. Not at all. Now, does the Bible talk about people who were indentured servants? In other words, someone would hire themselves out to someone else uh, for the purpose of paying off a debt uh, or something like that. Yes, the Bible does talk about that and regulates that institution, but that's a a completely different thing from what we had in this country. Okay, so you do find references to servants and masters in the Bible. How would we apply that today? Anybody else work for somebody, right? Do you have a boss? <laughs> right, okay, so the boss is still the boss. And if you work for someone, you ought to follow the uh, counsel that's given to the servants in the Bible, right? And keep in mind that the Bible was written at a time when most people were independent and didn't work for somebody else. They had their own land, they grew their own food, uh, etc. Especially, I'm saying the Old Testament is like that. It was considered a financial downturn if you had to go and work for somebody else, right? Now, uh, according to um, the trajectory hermeneutic, though, the Bible teaches the, 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 this progress and that further progress is needed in some of these areas for our modern situation. And, of course, it's up to the reader, left up to the reader to establish the trajectory of the Bible's ethical teaching through examining its culture in light of contemporary cultural norms. All that is to say this. The trajectory hermeneutic suggests that what you have in the Bible, the commands you have in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament, are sometimes insufficient to guide modern Christians because God had some further development of morality that he wanted to bring about. Now, does anybody see a problem with that? It, and nobody sees it? it does, do a few of you see a problem with that? What could be the problem there? Brother? Oh, yeah. So as society changes, in, in, in short, of course, where... Which, whose culture are you going to consult on this one, right? And how, uh, what areas of the culture should we analyze to determine where, you know, which, which moral teaching is appropriate? It becomes uh, very subjective. Now, I've classed this with higher criticism, and I'm sure that some of my friends would uh, take issue with me on that. Uh, I want to make it clear that there are people who use this approach to things 
who do accept miracles in the Bible and do believe that God intervenes in history. Okay, so this is not full-blown higher criticism. But this approach, this trajectory hermeneutic, I believe still retains the principle of criticism because it subjects the moral teachings of Scripture to external criteria, i.e. culture, science, and so on, to determine whether they are still valid or whether we should move on to a higher standard. In other words, what's the ultimate authority for the trajectory hermeneutic? Where's the authority? It's with me and it's with you and our analysis of the culture and of the scriptures, right? We become the ultimate authority. We become the one who decides what the trajectory is that the Bible's aiming at, but didn't reach. Plus, this uh, trajectory hermeneutic fails to clearly affirm the internal unity of the Bible, and it fails to clearly affirm the idea that the Bible is its own what? Interpreter. And is accessible to the average person. Does anyone here have a degree, a PhD, in ancient Near Eastern studies? No? Yeah, I don't either. I, <laughs> I mean, I've done PhD coursework in uh, New Testament studies, so I know something about New Testament backgrounds and culture, but I don't know a lot, a ton, about ancient Near Eastern culture. What this trajectory hermeneutic does, it forces the Bible into the hands of people who are the so-called experts because they become the only ones who have all the knowledge and wisdom of the culture of Scripture in order to then show where the trajectory of Scripture is going. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Listen to this statement. Great Controversy, page 51. The Bible would exalt God and place finite men in their true position. Therefore, its sacred truths must be concealed and suppressed. This is talking about during the time of apostasy in the uh, as the papacy was just getting going. This logic was adopted by the Roman church. For hundreds of years, the circulation of the Bible was prohibited. The people were forbidden to read it or to have it in their houses, and unprincipled priests and prelates interpreted its teachings to sustain their pretensions. So what happened with the Bible? It got put into the hands of the experts the scholars, and they told everybody what they were supposed to believe. Look, watch what that paves the way for. She says, same paragraph, thus the Pope came to be almost universally acknowledged as the vice-regent of God on earth, endowed with authority over church and state. What was the result of putting the Bible into the hands of experts? 
it paved the way for the exaltation of the Bishop of Rome. Interesting. Now, Wayne Grudem is a non-Adventist scholar, uh, but he's plugged in on this issue. And he, listen to what he says about what the results are of the trajectory hermeneutic, what a possible use of it could be. As far as I know, Wayne Grudem does not have the great controversy in his library. He's a Calvinist scholar. But here's what he says. On this basis, meaning through the use of the trajectory hermeneutic, on this basis, a Roman Catholic could argue that more reliable than anybody's speculation on where the New Testament teaching was leading are the historical facts of where the New Testament teaching did lead. And I inserted in their opinion. So the redemptive movement hermeneutic would give us the following picture, which actually was fulfilled in church history. First, Jesus' teachings mention no local church offices or church governing structure. Is that true? Do you see Jesus talking about elders and deacons? No, he doesn't. Does that mean that he's not concerned about that? Well, you know, of course not. But according to this, you know, that was the first phase. No elders, deacons, church officers, or church governing structure. Two, Paul's writings show increased authority given to elders and deacons. True? Sure. Three, so according to the Church of Rome, the final ultimate ethic to which the redemptive spirit of Scripture was leading was worldwide authority given to the Pope, cardinals, and bishops. So Grudem sees how this redemptive movement hermeneutic or trajectory hermeneutic could be used to justify the exaltation of the Bishop of Rome. Fascinating. Don't think he's, as far as I know, he hasn't read Ellen White. But he certainly seems to see the issues. Now, it's interesting what the uh, redemptive move, movement hermeneutic does with the Sabbath. And I'll read to you from William Webb, who is a proponent of the redemptive movement hermeneutic. He's an evangelical scholar. This is what he says. One cannot help but get the impression that some aspects of Eden, by which he means the creation story, are simply a part of the story and nothing more, while other aspects are extremely significant. Even if later writers invoke the Edenic pattern, meaning even if they refer to the creation story to sustain some command or uh, doctrine, even if they invoke the Edenic pattern, Sabbath, work week, land rest, that does not mean it is automatically transcultural. The particular pattern may well be tied to salvation historical factors and or agricultural concerns that are time-bound and cultural. So on what basis does Webb reach such conclusions? Is it from Scripture? No, it's from culture. He looks around and he says, well, nobody's keeping, very few people keep the Sabbath today, so that must not be transcultural. It is significant to note that for Webb, the modification of the Sabbath, that is the transition to Sunday, the lifting of work restrictions, serves as a pattern for other 
things that he uses the redemptive movement hermeneutic to justify, such as egalitarianism and other things. So, I wish we had the slide up. I guess they've given up on our uh, slideshow today. I just unplug this. Um, like I said, it'll be on the GYC website. It's been an interesting week, trying to cover a whole book of Scripture in six presentations. That's been, that's been challenging, and still do it justice. But uh, we saw this slide the other uh, on Thursday, spiritualism's new form. Now, I'm going to read this to you, and I'll we'll emphasize each one. We're just about finished. Even in its present form, so far from being more worthy of toleration than formerly, it is really a more dangerous because a more subtle deception. I want to stop and make a point there. Friends, I really want to appeal to you uh, this afternoon. If you believe that the final tests that we're going to face in Earth's history will be things that will smack you in the head like a two-by-four, forget it. The devil is dealing today with subtleties. You need to be studying Scripture, praying, asking God for guidance, because if you think it's going to be perfectly obvious to you and you can just sit back and say, well, you know, I know the truth. I'll be, I'll be fine. Please don't underestimate the cunning and skill of the enemy like that. The new form of spiritualism is really a more dangerous because it is a more subtle deception. While it formerly denounced Christ in the Bible, this is number, point number one, it now professes to accept both. So spiritualism comes in a new form, and it professes to accept both, both Christ and the Bible. Now, point number two will tell you why I'm tying in spiritualism here with higher criticism. Point number two, but the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart, while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. Keep in mind, this is, you can find this in Great Controversy 558. That's the reference. What does spiritualism do to the Bible? It professes to accept it, but then what does it turn around and do? It introduces new ways to interpret it that are pleasing to the unrenewed heart and that do away with vital truths. What does that sound like to you? It sounds to me like higher criticism. New interpretive schemes that allow us to do away with the things in the Bible that we don't want to deal with and only deal with those things that we like. Don't you think that's pleasing to the unrenewed heart? And that's exactly what's being prophesied here. Number three, see if you've heard this one. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. In other words, those things, those parts of the Bible that talk about that, we don't want we don't, we don't to go there. Okay, so we find new interpretation patterns 
to eliminate those out of our collective Christian consciousness. The people are taught to regard the Decalogue as a dead letter. Number four, pleasing, bewitching fables captivate the senses and lead men to reject the Bible as the foundation of their faith. There's the key. That's the devil's ultimate goal with this new form of spiritualism. And it has everything to do with how you choose to interpret Scripture. Are you going to allow it to speak for, your, for itself? Or will you be the one who sits in judgment on Scripture and says, this sounds reasonable to me, but this I will reject? Just a couple quotes to close. Acts of the Apostles, page 474.2. The follower of Christ will meet with, does it say it may meet? No, the follower of Christ will meet with the enticing words against which the apostle warned the Colossian believers. So are you going to bump into this higher criticism and so on and this new form of spiritualism? Is it going to come knocking at your door? Oh, yeah. He will meet with spiritualistic interpretations of the scriptures, but he is not to accept them. His voice is to be heard in clear affirmation of the eternal truths of the scriptures. Keeping his eyes fixed on Christ, he is to move steadily forward in the path marked out, discarding all ideas that are not in harmony with his teaching. The truth of God is to be the subject for his contemplation and meditation. He is to regard the Bible as the, now notice this please, he is to regard the Bible as the voice of God speaking directly to him. Thus he will find the wisdom which is divine. How is it that, how do you read the Bible, friends? Do you read the Bible like that? Do you believe that the Bible is the voice of God speaking directly to you? Or must you go through culture and all these other hoops to get there? Here's the real issue for our time. Can people like you and I pick up the book of God, open it up, pray for the Holy Spirit, Read it, understand it, and practice it. That's the issue. That's where I want to be. I think that's where the spirit of prophecy tells us we can be. Last uh, statement that I'll read to you. This is an appeal from First Selected Messages, page 18. She says, brethren, cling to your Bible as it reads. That is so important. The plain reading of the text. Just cling to your Bible as it reads and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word and not one of you will be lost. Isn't that good news? Praise God. You know, just... Read the Bible, believe that it's God's voice speaking directly to you. Stop your criticisms, criticisms as re, in regard to its validity. Just obey the word, do what it says, and none of you will be lost. The ingenuity of man has been exercised for ages to measure the word of God by their finite minds and limited comprehension. What's another way to describe that? Higher criticism. Higher criticism. 
If the Lord, the author of the living oracles, would throw back the curtain and reveal his wisdom and his glory before them, they would shrink into nothingness and exclaim, as did Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, 5. So, friends, I want to share with you this safe plan. Cling to your Bible as it reads, do not be led astray by the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, all those other things. Don't be dragged off by philosophy and vain deceit. These things are present with us now. They will only increase, and the subtlety will get uh, more and more difficult as well. Let God's word speak to you. Recognize it as his voice speaking directly to your heart. Obey the word, and not one of us will be lost. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we've used up our time today, but I trust that we haven't used it uh, inappropriately. Father, these issues are important, vital. You ask us to exercise discernment. You ask us to take your word and regard it as your voice speaking directly to us. I pray that your purpose would be fulfilled in every life that hears this recording. In every life that's present here in the room. Oh, Jesus, give us the wisdom we need and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.